So today we're going to go to Colossians because this series is on the book of Colossians and we're in the uh, first chapter of that book, very early on in the book, and laying a foundation for the theme of this series and the theme of the book of Colossians. And uh, it's on the top of the page, and we'll get there in a moment. The title of the message is Fortitude is Available. Fortitude is Available. So last week, I mentioned how frustrating fake news can be. Frustrating because it's so prevalent in our day and age. And we don't know what news outlets to trust. And so many people have so many biases that they kind of saturate their reporting in that it can be very frustrating to know the truth. So last week, frustration is optional. This week, fortitude is available. You can be strong no matter what you hear in the world. You can be strong no matter what messages that you have received from the people out there or on the television set or in your Facebook feed. You can be strong. But listen, strength is available. That means that you can get it, but you might not have it. And I want to tell you how to find strength in times of frustration when it seems like everybody has an agenda, everybody has a measure of deceit, and we need to be people who are rooted and grounded in the truth of God. Can I get a good amen? Amen. So today, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 We're going to read it as we go through the message today, but here's what I want us to do first. I want us to stand together, and if we can, guys, let's put up the theme verse on the screen, Colossians 2.8. This is the theme of the series, is the theme of the book of Colossians, and I want us to, once again, read the scripture together as a body of believers. So here's the point of the series, here's the point of the book of Colossians. Let's read together, Colossians 2, verse 8. One, two, three. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for what that verse asks of us, that we will see to it no one, no one, takes us captive to deceitful, empty philosophies. But Father, we will know the truth that is in Jesus Christ, your Son. And it is in his name we come to you, Father. And it is in his name we gather in this place, and we believe he is here with us. Help us to see Jesus and him only. In his mighty name we pray, and everybody said... Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. He says, don't let anybody take you captive to empty traditions, empty traditions and human philosophies according to human tradition and not according to, what's the last word of that verse we just read? Christ. Notice the word Christ. He doesn't say God. He says Christ. In another passage in Colossians, he's going to say that in Christ is hidden all the wisdom and the treasures of God. Christ is God. Jesus is God. He is not your personal assistant. He is not your special friend. 
He is not some imaginary fable from mythology. Jesus Christ lived on the earth. He walked on the earth for 33 years. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, under the Roman Empire. And three days later, he rose again. And you can go to Jerusalem today, and you can check out one of two tombs that are both empty because we still don't know where they buried him. Because when you rise from the dead three days after they bury you, people are going to have a hard time finding your original burial plot. We do not worship a dead prophet from ancient past. We worship a living Savior at the right-hand side of God the Father. Amen. And I think that sometimes what happens with Christians and what was happening with the Colossians in the first century is we come to Christ, but then we kind of, we kind of forget what we have in Christ. And this is why we get misled into all these little spiritual bunny trails that lead us away from what we have in Jesus. Be careful, Christian, of the same temptation that was facing the Colossians in the first century. That there's some kind of secret knowledge out there that somebody else can help you get to a more higher spiritual plane. No, if it's not rooted in Christ, it's nonsense. Be careful, Christian, of the newest, latest book that comes down the pike. They're usually on Oprah's book club list. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, watch out, because there's always some super spiritual guru offering you a path to enlightenment, and I want to tell you, there's plenty of good Christian books, but if they're not rooted in Jesus, the Son of God, watch out, they're full of nonsense. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. And what Paul was trying to tell in the Colossians is, you've got to be strong in what you know in Jesus, and, and, and he goes off on this long tangent of who Jesus is in the second half of the first chapter in Colossians. And we're going to get to, the, to that in a moment. But sometimes we forget what we have in Jesus. Sometimes we forget and we've got to do a little bit of investigation. And we've got to realize just how powerful, just how wonderful, just how awesome Jesus is. I was raised in western Massachusetts. Now in western Massachusetts, we have what is called trees <laughs> you're like we have trees here not like over there it's like forest you ever been to the Berkshires it's like another planet it's like where they film Star Wars scenes come on you know what I'm talking about I was raised in the middle of a of a forest and my father was a wood gatherer and he would chop down trees and then he would cut the wood up and he would store it for the winter and we would burn well this this, I hated it when I was a kid because I used to have to help them. But it took root in me as an adult because now we have a place in our house to burn wood and keep our house a little extra warm in the winter. And so I have gotten, about 10 years ago, I got into the habit of gathering wood for winter. So what you need when you gather wood is you need a good chainsaw. And I went to the store and I bought myself a Craftsman chainsaw from Sears. Mmm. All the chainsaw people know exactly what's wrong with that. And I told my father, and he was on the phone with me, and he said, what did you buy a craftsman for? I would have let you borrow my steel chainsaw. Son, we are a steel family. Come on, chainsaw people. And if you're a steel family, you don't speak to Husqvarna people. Come on, you know what I'm talking about? Anyway, that's for another message. So I, I, borrow, I, I, I borrowed my father's chainsaw, and I tried it, and it didn't work very well. 
And I have a picture of a steel chainsaw up on the screen here. We can put that picture. That's a steel chainsaw. Okay, that's a real chainsaw. So anyway, I tried my father's steel chainsaw. It didn't work very well. The craftsman worked for a while, but eventually it didn't work well anymore. And I called my father and I said, I got a problem because I got two chainsaws. They don't work well. He says, why do you even try the craftsman? Use mine. You just might need a new blade. And so I went to the store. I got a new steel blade for my, chain, for my father's chainsaw. I put it on there. And I'm telling you something. It was like an enlightenment moment in my life. I put that chainsaw through some wood, and it just went like a knife through butter, just zoo. And I was like, oh, praise the steel chainsaw, right? It was like a, it was a conversion moment. And so I was like, I got to get me a steel chainsaw. So I went to the steel chainsaw shop. They don't sell these at Home Depot and Lowe's. You got to go to a specialty shop. For this chainsaw. So I went to the steel guy. And I said, my father has this model chainsaw. I want the same thing. He goes, we don't sell that model anymore. That's from like the 1980s. He says, but I can get you a comparable model that we sell today. I said, all right, fine. I'll buy that one. So he brings me to this shelf of chainsaws. There's literally 15 chainsaw models on the shelf. And they range from the left-hand side of the shelf, $250, to the right-hand side of the shelf, about $2,000. And so he walks me over to the shelf, and I'm looking at the first price. I'm like, oh, okay, $250. That's, that's not too bad. But he goes past that one, the $350, the $450, the $650, the $750. He goes to the second-to-last chainsaw on the shelf. It costs $1,500 stinking dollars. And he says, this is about the equivalency of what your father owns. So I say, okay, I'm going to think about it. And I go outside, get in my car call my dad up and I say, Dad, you know how you live in Florida now and you don't need to cut wood and save it for the winter? I just want to let you know that I have kidnapped your chainsaw and if you ever want to see it again, I'm sorry, no, you're never going to see it again. (laughs) Praise God, I got part of my inheritance a little bit early, somebody. (laughs) Well, what I'm trying to tell you is sometimes we don't realize what we got until we do a little investigation. And what I'm trying to tell you folks is that if you're a Christian and if you're a born-again child of the living God, sometimes you need to be reminded of what you've got in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul the Apostle is trying to tell the Colossians so that they don't get persuaded away from who they are in Jesus and what they've got in Jesus. Here's the theme of this message. I want you to write these things down in your notes. Knowing what we have in Christ will protect us from the lie that anyone and anything can offer us anything more. You got to know who Jesus is so that you understand the power that is available to you, the joy that you can have, the confidence you should be living with so that no one can get you off track from what God has called you to be. Now, it is not for lack of trying that the world tries to find some way of getting the good life outside of Jesus. There is no shortage of options, no shortage of sales pitches, no shortage of conferences and motivational speakers and sessions and classes and accomplishments in this culture that promise the good life and really never deliver. This came out recently, a report from Yale University. The most popular class 
in Yale this past year was Psych 157, and the title of the class was Psychology and the Good Life. Psychology and the Good Life. In other words, the class's theme was how to find happiness. It was the most taken course at Yale University. Do you know why they started the course? They started the course because they found out that over 50% of their students had sought mental health counseling. That means that over 50% of an Ivy League institution students who should be experiencing the pathway to the good life were so racked in their minds, so mentally racked, they actually had to seek help because they weren't getting it from their good life path. So half the students suffer from mental health, a quarter of the students take this class, and here's what the professor said about the class. Here's what the professor of the class said. She said that um, what we have often associated with the good life or achieving happiness here at Yale are three things. Good grades, a prestigious internship, and a great paying job. And what we have found is that these three things do not increase happiness at all. And here's the quote that I really want you to pay attention to. She said, our intuitions about what will make us happy, like winning the lottery and getting a good grade, are totally wrong. There's a lot of people telling you the good life is over here, over there, over there. And you've got to understand that it just takes a little bit of time before we realize that what we thought was the way to true happiness, life, and peace often fails us. Because if it's not rooted in the one who made us, we will not find the purpose that has already been pre-programmed within us. And that is only found in Jesus. Jesus is the path to joy. And when you have joy in Jesus, you have the joy of the Lord, which the Bible says is our strength. I've got joy in Jesus because now I know my life is not the summation of my accomplishments, my achievements, or the acquisitions of my life, but my happiness and my life is rooted with God, in Christ with God. I have happiness in Jesus because I know that the one who formed me has a plan for me and will never abandon me. I have happiness in Jesus because I know there's no power that would come against me, that God is not more powerful than and can work and orchestrate straight all the things about that power coming against me for my ultimate good I have joy in Jesus because I know that this life is not the end I've got a life coming to me in him this world cannot take my joy this world cannot dissuade me from that if all else fails Jesus Christ never fails and we've got to be reminded of this We've got to be reminded of what we've got in Jesus. So three things. Fortitude is available, number one, because Jesus Christ is cosmic Lord. This is what Paul's going to tell us in chapter one of Colossians. He is cosmic Lord. Look at the words from verse 15 of Colossians chapter one. It says, he, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. By the way, firstborn here doesn't mean that he was created by God. 
Jesus Christ was never created. He became flesh, but he was with God in the beginning. He was God. That's John chapter 1. The term firstborn here means it's an ancient term referring to the one, the son, who has the control of the father's house. So what firstborn here means is that Jesus has control of all that God has. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now look at verse 16. For by him all things were created. How were you created? Through Jesus, the word of God. And then he says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things, somebody say all things, were created through him. And look at these next three words. Underline them in your notes, if you will. They weren't just created through him. They were created for him. You were created for Jesus. You might not understand that yet because you haven't yet come to faith, but your life, the point, the aim of your life is to be the living body of Jesus Christ on this earth. Cosmic Lord. He says all things are created by him and for him. Uh, and then it says this, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Okay, let's unpack this. Because the first part of the verse he says... He's the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, Paul says, look at Jesus. This is why we have four accounts of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they tell us what God is like because when we see Jesus, we see the Father. This is good news for the person who does not feel worthy to be in church because the Jesus of the New Testament loved hanging around religious outsiders. He loved hanging around people who felt unworthy for God. Tax collectors loved him. Prostitutes loved him. Publicans and sinners notoriously ate and drank with Jesus because why? This is what God is like. God is the God who goes after those who don't feel worthy, those who feel outside the in crowd, those who don't quite feel like they measure up to the righteousness of other people, I got good news for you. Jesus Christ is coming after the people who don't feel worthy in church. This is good news for the person who feels like the storms of life are raging all around you. And maybe it's a financial storm or a relational storm or a child storm or some kind of storm. Just storm, storm, storm. And maybe you're in the middle of one right now. There's a story about Jesus coming out to the disciples in the middle of the storm and he's walking on the water. And he speaks to the storm and he calms it. He's cosmic Lord. Jesus Christ can give you a word that'll speak right into your storm and calm the storm. You want to know what God is like, you got to look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He says to Philip in John chapter 14, verse 9, he says, Philip, don't you understand that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like, look at me, Jesus said. This is why you can't leave Jesus at religious teacher. You can't leave Jesus at religious founder, inspirational figure, prophet of old, rabbi or teacher. He doesn't, as C.S. Lewis famously said, he doesn't allow you that option. You either read what he said about himself and you come to one of three conclusions. He is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. He was either completely unaware of who he really was or he was trying to deceive millions or he was Lord. And 1.8 billion Christians around the world have come to the conclusion that he wasn't a liar and he wasn't a lunatic. He is, in fact, the Lord of the universe. 
And so you got to understand that there's, there's, there's no way you can't know what God is like. My son was on the playground over here at the church the other day, and a little boy showed up and started playing with him. And they were playing together, and then they had a little six-year-old conversation, as only six-year-olds can do. And the little boy, uh, uh, my son, Jake, asked the little boy, who's your dad? And the little boy said, well, he's this person, and he does this and that, the other thing. Who's your dad? And Jake says, you don't know who my dad is? <laughs> and the little boy says, no, I don't know. He goes, well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. Jake's my favorite. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm playing, I'm playing around. I'm playing around. But my point is, is that Jesus didn't do that to us. He came to clearly reveal the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 says this. I love this verse. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. And check out these phrases. These are powerful phrases. The exact imprint of his nature. The word in Greek for imprint is character. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. They're talking about Jesus. You cannot possibly put Jesus on the same playing field as Muhammad and Gandhi. And frankly, I'm sick of the world doing that. All of history revolves around Jesus. It is 2018. 2018 years since Jesus. Do you understand that before that time, we used, to, we, used to, um, we used to call the year whatever year since the most powerful monarch in the world at that time had taken a throne. In the 13th year of Caesar, in the 14th year of uh, other monarchs, other kings of ancient past. And we stopped that when Jesus rose from the grave. It is 2018 in the year of our Lord. The Bible says in Colossians 1.16, again, all things were created through him and for him. You are created for Jesus. And then in verse 17, he says this powerful phrase, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. This is why if you don't have Jesus, your life will fall apart. Your life will spin out of control if you don't have Christ. Some people come to church, they feel so like, like, oh, everything is falling to pieces. Exactly. You need Christ. I read an article, and the title of the article was kind of interesting. The title of the article is a scientific article that said 99.9999999% of you is actually empty. 99.99999% <laughs> of you is empty space. This is a scientific article. How many of you are just encouraged by science every time you learn from science. Isn't it encouraging? And here's what they were saying. We are made up of molecules, right? Molecules are made up of what? Atoms. Sometimes I feel like a fifth grade teacher. Okay. Atoms. <laughs> Atoms are made up of... Oh, gosh. Okay. Protons. New, there you go, neutrons and electrons. electrons. Now, <laughs> this is science like from fifth grade, okay? And since everybody's going back to school, I'm giving you all a head start. All right. In the atom, there's a nucleus. In the nucleus, there are what? There's the neutrons and the protons. And around the nucleus orbits what? The electrons. Is it all coming back to you yet? 
I read this article, I was flabbergasted because here's what I thought. If all that makes us up are a bunch of atoms that have a nucleus, a center, and then orbiting little planets, if you will, of electrons, what the heck is in between? The nucleus and the electron, right? And then I found out that the nucleus is one one-hundredth one the size of the atom. I want you to think about this. Let me explain what I mean by that. If the nucleus of an atom was a basketball, the closest electron orbiting that nucleus would be two miles away. The question then is begged. What is in between? And you know what science in all their brilliance tells us? Nothing. 99.99999% of you is empty space. So if you feel a little empty, you should. <laughs> and the question is further posed, why don't the electrons fly off away from the nucleus? And you know what science with all its brilliance has to say about that? We don't know. I kid you not, they still don't know. They call it different things. They call it nuclear energy. This is why when you split the atom, things explode. And, and they call it, you know, electromagnetic forces and all, all kinds of names for it. They have all kinds of names for what holds the atom together, but nobody can understand how it works. I, I read this about the oxygen atom. This is crazy because the oxygen atom, listen, has eight neurons with no charge and eight protons which are positively charged and under the laws of science, similarly, similarly charged particles should repel each other but for some reason, oxygen just stays happily together. And we all breathe oxygen. It is a scientific marvel that explosions are not happening at every single moment in every single quadrant of space. What's the answer? How is that working? Here's what a famed scientist, um, George Gamow, said. He was one of the originators of the Big Bang Theory. Here's what he said. He said, we live in a world which is pr in which practically every object is a potential nuclear explosive without being blown to bits. How many of you are just encouraged by that right there? I'm just, thank you. Yes, that blesses my heart. Amen. You grasp what this implies. It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should never have been created. And if created, they should have been blown up instantly. Yet here they all are. Look at this next line. <laughs> Some inflexible inhibition. That's another word for it. Is holding them relentlessly together. Science says this is what it is, but we have no idea why it is. And that's always been the case for science. Science can tell you the what, it can never tell you the why. And the scriptures 2,000 years ago, written by a Jew in the first century, came out with the why. He said, in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. The reason why you're not falling apart right now is because Jesus Christ is holding you together. Don't you see what this means? If your life is falling apart, science is telling you, come to the one who's holding you together physically and he'll hold you together spiritually and emotionally as well. Come to him. 
He holds us together. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Well, if he can hold your atoms together, pal, he can hold your marriage together. Maybe your mind is falling apart. Mental illness, huge problem in today's world. Huge problem in our country with all of our wealth, with all of our success, with all of our power, and we're all miserable. Why? Because we've walked away from the one who's the author of it all. Come back to him and he'll hold you together. This is good news for anybody in this house who came to church today and you feel like life is spiraling out of control. Jesus can hold you together. Number two, Jesus Christ is the church's head. Now, what I love about Paul here is that he moves quickly. <laughs> he is cosmic Lord and, and he's over all and through all and in all and because everything, ex everything exists because of him and all this. And then he moves right to the church. Like you would think he would talk about presidents and, and kings and, and kingdoms. No. No, the cosmic Lord did not found an earthly kingdom. He found a church. The cosmic Lord started a church. He said to Peter, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And the church has had some bad days. You read church history, sometimes it'll depress you. But 2,000 years later, it's still here, and it's bigger than ever. And right now, our Catholic brothers and sisters, they're having a bit of a problem. And the reason why is because too many Catholics look to the Pope as their head. And the answer is not the Pope. The answer is Jesus. The Pope is maybe in charge of the Catholic Church, but he's not in charge of the universal church. Jesus Christ is the head of the global church. And you need to stay attached to the head. And I want to explain this for you. But first, the text. Colossians 1.18. Paul moves on. So he's going from cosmic Lord to church of sin. And he is the head of the body. Somebody say body. The church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was perfectly sinless and perfectly obedient to the Father. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We're going to get there in a moment, but let me just look at that first line. And he is the head of the body, the church. One of the themes of the New Testament about you and I is that we are the body of Christ. And we're all different parts of the body of Christ. And everybody here who has a body knows that the function of your body is dependent on its connection to the head. Everybody look at my finger. Watch this. This is fabulous. Watch. Did you see that? I'll do it again. Okay, now in slow motion. NFL super slow motion. No, it's just kidding. <laughs> How does my finger do that? How does my finger do that? Because my finger is attached to my hand, which is attached to my forearm, which is attached to my bicep, which is attached to my shoulder, which is attached to my torso, which is attached to my neck, which is attached to my head. As impressive as this is, <laughs> it'll never happen if this finger ever cuts, gets cut off from the hand. But the hand is not the one giving the power to the finger. The power comes through the other members. 
to the finger so that the finger can function. I'm trying to tell you something. If you don't stay attached to the head, you'll never function. You ever, my, my wife will tell you, I used to cut down trees. My wife used to cut chickens' heads off. She grew up in South Africa. And uh, she did this for food. And she'll tell you, when you cut a chicken's head off, the body will freak out for a little while. And it'll like run around. And blood will be spurting out of its neck. But eventually, it'll just collapse. I want you to see this as an image of how many people's lives are just like that chicken. They've been cut off from God. And yeah, they're doing a lot of activity. Oh, they look active. They look alive. But they're just waiting to die. If you're cut off from the head, that's your life. You need to stay attached to Jesus. You need to get attached, and then you need to stay attached to Jesus Christ. He is the head through which the whole body functions. You've got to stay attached to Jesus and not to me. Pastor, are you going anywhere? No. What I'm trying to tell you is I am not the source of your life. I read another article that kind of shocked me, kind of scared me, actually. One quarter of pastors in America are suffering with serious mental illness. One quarter of pastors. I read the article, and I read the article, and I said, that's why. And I want to tell you why. Because for too many churches, the pastor is the guy responsible to do all the ministry for everybody. Most churches are under 100 people, and everybody looks to that guy to provide all the counseling, all the therapy, all the ministry, all the, all the funerals, all the weddings. All the stuff has to happen through that one guy. 10% of America, the reports are, 10% of Americans look to their pastor or priest as their primary spiritual uh, counselor and therapist. And by the way, counselors and therapists also have a high suicide rate. Do you know why? Because no one person is meant to be your spiritual source. No one person is meant to be your spiritual guru. Myself, most importantly. I'm not trying to tell you to be connected to me. I'm not interested in that at all. I want you to be connected to Jesus. He's the one that life flows from through, yes, the different parts of the body, but it comes to you through those people, and they existing in your life is a testimony to the Jesus who saved them to reach out to you and bring life to your mortal body. Here, here's how Paul describes. Here's how Paul describes a little later in Colossians the false teachers, the false teachers that were inundating the church in Colossae. He says, "They are not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body. What's the next word, everybody? Nourished. nourished. nourished from whom? Jesus. You get nourished from Jesus. I'm not preaching my ideas today. It's nourishing you because it's rooted and grounded in the living word of Jesus Christ. He's the nourishment. He's the food. He said to the, the followers of his in John chapter 6, he, he says, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will never go hungry again. He said to the woman at the well, I am the water of life. If you drink of me, you will never go thirsty again. If you want nourishment, if you want health, if you want strength, if you want power, don't be attached to a pastor or a priest or a therapist or a counselor. Get attached to the body of Christ through whom the nourishment of the Lord Jesus will flow into your life. So he says, look, they're not connected to the head. They're not nourished. They're not knit together. And look at this. Through its joints and ligaments, it grows. The body, when it's, when it's connected to the Christ, the head, it, through the joints and ligaments. Some of you people are joints. Some of you people are ligaments in the body of Christ. And through you, the life of Jesus flows. This is why when you meet me, 
if I meet you here at Waters Church? And I said, oh, I love this church. I'm so glad to be a part of this church. I said, wonderful. And the second question that I will ask is, are you in a? Yeah, there you go. You all got it. Are you in a small group? Are you connected? Are you connected? I guarantee you that if you just come and listen to me, eventually it'll wear off. No, no, I'm serious. <laughs> all right? You've got to get connected to the body. You've got to have friends. You've got to have people that you can call on when life's storms hit you. You've got somebody with the life of Jesus in them who can be life for you. And it can't be one person. It's got to be the body. It's got to be the whole body coming together, loving one another, serving one another, encouraging one another as we see the day of Jesus approaching. That's Hebrews 10.25. That we do not give up neglecting, that we do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but that we gather together and encourage one another more and more. Friends, Jesus is coming soon. You look at the world, you hear the news, and you hear all about the stuff that's bad, all the things that are going on in the world, and you're like, I am freaking out, I don't want to see it. Yes, Jesus told us this would happen. And as we see the quickness of his arrival coming through all the stories and all the news that we see of the bad that's going on in the world, I got news for you, it's just a sign that his coming is sooner than before. Are you ready? Are you strong? You're going to be strong by being connected to the head through which you will function in your calling in Christ. Number three, Jesus is the Christian's best friend. He's your cosmic Lord. He's church's head. He's Christian's friend. You've got a friend in Jesus. And your friend is the cosmic Lord of the universe. So let me unpack this for you because here's what Paul says in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, can everybody say that word with me? Reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He reconciled you. To what? To present you holy and blameless, above reproach before God, him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Jesus Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago to do several things for us, but one of them is reconcile us back to God. Now, what does the word reconcile mean? It means this. It means that enemies make up and become friends again. Let me explain this for a moment. Every single one of you understands this individually. Because if you have a friend who breaks your heart or betrays your trust, or steals from you, immediately it's almost like there's hostility. And you say to yourself, I'm not gonna talk to them again until, right? This is what we do in our interpersonal relationships. Why? Why? Because we know that until things are made right, we can't really have a peaceful relationship with them. Until they apologize, until they pay me back, until they say they're sorry, until something. And, and, and there's people, you're sitting here right now, some of you have that relationship with some of your, your parents, your children, your family, your friends, whatever. I, 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 can't, I can't speak to them until. Okay, why? Because you're irreconciled right now. You got, you're irreconciled. And what you need is someone to pay, hopefully them, for what they did to you. And when that payment is made, then you will talk to them again. It's called reconciliation. 
Now, if we understand that individually, shouldn't it make sense that we who are made in the image of God are just reflecting the nature of God? And that Adam and Eve, when they sinned and disobeyed in perfection, which led to a long litany of sins from them that flow through us, there are things that we have taken from God, we have robbed God, we have insulted him, we have neglected him, we have ignored him, some of us have some of us have accosted him verbally. There is a need, friends, for reconciliation. Somebody has to pay to make things right. Y'all following what I'm saying? The problem is you can't pay it. And I'm so glad to tell you this. <laughs> God did not wait for you to pay it. He sent Jesus Christ to pay it for you. He reconciled us through his body of flesh in his death on the cross. Why would he do that? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. I think the only way to illustrate this is to tell the story. One last story, then I'm done. I started with a father-son story. Let me tell you a father-son story, but this time I'm the father. Years ago when my third son was born... It was a real struggle to get him to sleep. Anybody have a child like that? You know what I'm talking about? It takes you like three hours to get the kid to, to bed. And I worked so hard that day because I needed to get some stuff done in my office. And my other son was playing with his friend video game in the next room. They're playing video games. And I'm like, just trying to get this kid to sleep for heaven's sakes. Fall asleep. <laughs> Finally, he falls asleep. And I did. I tiptoe to my office. I got on the computer. I'm typing as softly as I can. I don't want to wake up the kid. Suddenly, I hear this gargling scream from the video game room where my son is playing with his friend. And I get up on my chair. I'm going, ah, what are you doing? Ah. I mean, it's a bad moment for me as a dad, but I'm just like laying into him as a quiet, like the quiet yell, like, I can't believe you. Ah. My son's like, it was me, dad. It was me. It was me. I'm like, just kind of just stop, just still, ah, and I stomp off. And then I hear his friend leave about 30 minutes later. So I decide because I'm not that great of a father, I'm going to go lay into my son a little bit more for making noise. And I go back and I say, kind of, why do you don't understand how hard it is to get your, your brother to sleep? And he's like, Dad, it wasn't me. And I said, what do you mean it wasn't you? It was my friend. I said, then why did you take the blame? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, because I didn't want you to yell at him. And in that moment, the Lord showed me what a terrible father I am. <laughs> How I need his grace. But then he also showed me what Jesus did for you and for me. He got in between us and the wrath of a holy God so that he could reconcile prodigal sons and daughters with their father. Now, I don't know who's told you about God, but I'm trying to tell you what he's really like. He's the cosmic Lord who began a church to reach out to you and bring you back to the Father who loves you.